You're listening to Alex's story, a daughter born with heterotaxy and congenital heart defects on the Child Life On Call podcast. When she got diagnosed, I really thought that this was going to throw me into a complete place of like, um, just I, I think kind of almost like an anger or a hate and I don't I don't feel that way at all sometimes I feel sad because I feel sad for her that she doesn't get to live a quote-unquote normal life but then my husband reminds me that this is her normal and if anything I think that this whole journey has just made me feel such strength because she she just like amazes me every single day every thing that she does I mean they told me she would never eat by mouth she would never crawl she was never going to walk and she was walking when she was 11 months old and she runs around the house right now at one welcome child life on call podcast listeners I'm so happy that you're here and so thankful that you're joining us today to hear more about parents and patient experiences in the hospital you just heard from Alex mom to a sweet little girl named Lucy Alex and her husband are from outside of Philadelphia and are high school sweethearts that have been together for 12 years. They married two years ago and shortly after became pregnant with their daughter. Alex begins her story talking about her 20-week appointment and what they learned from their doctor. It was a really fairly normal pregnancy. I was 25 years old, so it was very low risk. Um, We went in for the 20-week ultrasound and... It was going really well. We were making jokes about the size of her feet. Her feet looked huge. And um, we had gone in really not wanting to know the gender. We wanted that to be a surprise. We wanted to just have fun and enjoy everything. And the tech got really quiet all of a sudden and told us that, uh, you know, things were in the wrong spots and things were going crazy and da-da-da. And she had to go grab a doctor. And that's when we kind of realized that something was up. So right then is when we received our initial you know, diagnosis. They weren't exactly sure what was going on yet, but that for us was the beginning of, you know, going through this whole journey together. But um, we are right outside of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We live about 10 minutes away. So that made going through this journey even easier from the beginning that we didn't have to relocate. We didn't have to do anything. Um, One of the best children's hospitals in the world was right down the street from us. So we went the next morning for a fetal echo. And then that's when we got a little more into what was going on. Um, And that night we went home. They specifically told me not to Google anything that they had mentioned in the appointment prior to the echo, because they didn't want me getting ideas in my head before we had a real diagnosis. And I actually did really well. I I did not open any internet browsers all night. We turned our phones off. We put the computer away. Um, I ate an ice cream cake and I cried because I knew something was wrong, but we decided then that we needed to know if the baby was a boy or girl, because I needed to go in the next morning knowing, you know, if this was my son or my daughter, if I needed to connect somewhere. So that was kind of, for us, that was like the first change was now we wanted to know what this baby was and kind of who we were going on this journey with. So my husband opened the card while I was eating my ice cream cake and he told me she was a girl and I did not believe him because I was convinced from the beginning. Yeah, I was totally convinced that she was a boy. Like, no way in the world could this be a girl. And uh, we started looking at names and we decided right then and there that we were going to name her Lucy. And 
that was that was like the beginning of that. So we went in knowing she was a girl. We started calling her Lucy right away. And um, we, you know, that was just kind of the beginning for us of knowing. But we were still holding on to a little hope at that point that maybe they were wrong and it was just a bad angle um, or a bad, you know, something that they just weren't seeing it correctly and that the experts were going to tell us everything was okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And I, I love that you like started calling her Lucy right away. Cause it does, it kind of gives you that connection with your baby. I'm, pr- I'm pregnant right now and we don't have a name yet. And there's kind of this big, and it's not cause we don't want to, we just don't have one. So there is that like, who are you, you know, and then once you have that, you can kind of connect a little bit easier, but yeah, that was, that was important. And I'm so impressed that you also turned off your phones because I, I think that would be so hard to do, especially yeah, it was because, yeah, but it sounds like you did the right thing for you guys. And so take us from there. What happened after that? Um, so we went home, like I said, we turned off the phones and everything. My mom actually happened to be getting a mammogram when I was getting the anatomy scan. So she had, had come down to sit with us and she heard everything. She went home and Googled everything, but she was really good about not telling me. Um, we went bright and early. I mean, they, it just so happened that this, um, particular cardiologist from CHOP comes once a month to our local hospital and does fetal fetal echoes. And she was coming the next morning. So they called her to see if she would come in early to see us because she was already booked. Um, and she said, yes, which is when I kind of thought again, that something must be wrong because this woman's coming in at seven 30 in the morning to meet us. Um, we got there. We sat down. It was about a 45-minute ultrasound of her heart and her organs. Um, they had her to go sit in the waiting room. And then when they called us back in, she whipped out a picture of a normal heart. And then she whipped out a picture of Lucy's heart that she had drawn. And that was the first time that we had seen anything. I mean, I knew nothing about congenital heart defects or anything. Um, the first thing she told us was that Lucy definitely had a disorder called heterotaxy which is a misplacement of organs, and that in her case, the stomach was on the wrong side, her liver and her gallbladder were um, midline instead of where they were supposed to be. They couldn't visualize a spleen, and she had two of the same lungs. So, like, a normal person's lungs look like parentheses, kind of, and Lucy's looked like quotation marks, like they were both going in the same direction. Um, And then at that time, they gave us four different heart defects and um by the time Lucy was born and we went through all the fetal echoes and they did an echo on her she ended up with six but um at that time she told us that she was going to be well she kept saying the fetus she didn't use gender or anything um that the baby was going to be a single ventricle person so um she would have to well he or she would have to be born at top and be immediately taken for assessment and would definitely need at least three open heart surgeries, one very close to birth, one when she w- he or she was between four and eight months old, and then another one between the ages of two and three. Um, and in this, they, it would be a palliative surgery where they would make the heart work as best as they could, but it would never be a normal heart. It was going to have one pumping chamber, um, basically because there was a giant hole and the one side didn't develop. So this was the best they could do for us. Um, so she told us all of this. She gave us some pretty grim odds, told us, um, just with all the combination of defects and her organ disorders that, you know, her likelihood of survival was probably only 15 to 30% to the first year. And, um, you know, did we wish to continue on with the pregnancy? 
we had about, I think it was something like 10 days to decide before it would have been illegal in our state to have um, an abortion. And I mean, immediately without even consulting each other, me and my husband both were like, oh no, we're having the baby. And um, she said to us, do you know what the baby is? And I said, yeah, we know she's a girl. And immediately this woman switched her whole demeanor to, okay, well, do you have a name? Okay, she is going to do this. We are going to do this to get her there. And in that moment, when I, when I listened to her switch everything, it made me feel very comforted. That woman is still Lucy's cardiologist to this day. She followed me my entire pregnancy. She has followed Lucy for the last 12 months. Um, she immediately went into, she called her by name. She never asked again what our plans were. She knew that moment that we were going to do it. I told her I didn't care if I got an hour or 10 years, whatever we got was what we were going to get because we wanted to meet this little girl. And um, just seeing that and then later um, connecting with a lot of heart families and families who are really complex, a lot of people are really, really pushed towards terminating the pregnancy. And um, I didn't realize how lucky we were in that moment that her doctor really just listened to us saying no and never brought it up again. She never made me feel pressured. She never made me feel like it was a bad decision. She said, we're going to do everything. And if she can get through these surgeries, there's a really good chance that she can live a fairly normal life. She's always going to have complications and um, needs and stuff. But for the most part, she can um, probably participate in lighter activity sports and she can go to school and, um, you know, she can do things that other kids do. And um, that was the first time all in this one appointment that I saw all of the bad of what was going to happen, but also all of the positives of what, um, you know, what could end up being a really good life for her if we could get through all of this. So for us, it was, it was just nice to, you know, learn that we, we had a little bit of a chance and we didn't know at that moment how big the chance was going to be, but um, we would go every I would say about three weeks, I would go to CHOP um, for a fetal echo, and they kept discovering more issues with the heart and changing her diagnosis back and forth. And by the time all was said and done, I was going once a week because I had elevated blood pressure. So they were doing um, biophysicals on her to make sure that she was handling the stress well. And then they were also doing echoes because they kept um, finding things, visualizing things differently. She had blood flow that they couldn't figure out where the blood flow was coming from. And um, they actually never did figure it out until she was born. They, they actually needed her to be able to figure out where that blood flow was coming from. But um, I transferred CHOP has a program called the Special Delivery Unit. It's one of the only, I think it might still be the only in the country where the moms can actually deliver in the children's hospital so that they can be with their babies. Um, they do a bunch of high risk. It's heart patients, spina bifida, a bunch of other um, high-risk pregnancies that can deliver there. And um, I saw the same tech for my ultrasounds and the same uh, cardiologist and tech um, echo person every single week. And they actually, my last week of pregnancy, I was supposed to be induced on March 19th. I was due the 26th. Um, It was March 16th. It was supposed to be my last appointment. And then I would go in on Sunday to be induced. And Janelle was her name. She looked at me and she said, I know this is a stupid question because I see you every single week, but you haven't had a procedure done in the last seven days, like an amniocentesis. And I said, no, I'm 38 weeks pregnant. I did not have an amnio now. And she said, okay, because something's wrong. 
And so she was giving us a like a run for our money right up to the last moment. Um, I had a really rare pregnancy complication where the membranes start to strip from the uterus and the lining before you're actually in labor. And it can be fairly dangerous for a regular baby, but especially because we were concerned about her blood flow levels and her oxygenation that they actually kept me. And I had gone by myself to the appointment. I was like, we're getting induced on Sunday. I don't need to go early. Um, so I went by myself. I had to call my husband. He rushed into the city from work. And uh, when they did get me settled, I found out I actually was in active labor. I had no idea. But um, she was, I was in labor for about 10 hours when she started going into major fetal distress. Her heart rate was dropping insanely. And they said to us, um, you're going to have to move to a C-section. And at this point, I had had three epidurals because none of them were working. And then they they told us the fourth one was going to have to work or they were going to have to put me under general. And if they had to put me under general anesthesia, my husband couldn't be in the room. And for us, that was terrifying because we didn't know if she was going to make it through birth. And all I wanted was someone to be with her when she was born. Um, so I, I told that anesthesia guy, I said, you make this one work because I'm not doing that. Yeah. And, uh, the fourth one was a charm, not to scare you because you're having a baby <laughs> six weeks, but <laughs> the fourth one was a charm. And, uh, we got in there, of course, it's 1130 at night on March 16th. And my husband says, well, this take us into March 17th. Cause it'd be great if she could be a St. Patrick's baby because <laughs> we're Irish. She was born on St. Patrick's, well, one twenty-six in the morning. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and she had a she full hung on for head you. of red hair. Wow. Yeah. She, yeah, full head of red hair. And when they didn't even have to tell us she was born because she came out screaming, which was the best thing in the world for us because we had to been told that she might be born blue. She might have to be intubated right away. And I could hear her screaming. They took her into another room to set her up, do her ID. She needed to be put on the medication immediately. And, um, my husband went with her and I could hear her screaming and they ran back to tell me she had red hair. And I was just on like cloud nine that she was okay. And then, um, I went through my whole recovery of them, you know, doing everything. And they wheeled me back into my room. And at this point I hadn't seen her yet. And we, I walked, I didn't walk into the room. I wheeled into the room and, um, she was actually in the room with my husband and all of our parents who had come down. And, um, just the fact that she was stable enough to be sitting in that room with all of them. Um, you know, they, we weren't allowed to hold her because they did have her hooked up to a bunch of machines, but we were allowed, you know, they put her on my chest so I could see her. Um, you know, she was crying. She was, uh, you know, sucking onto things. It was a moment that I, I was so thankful for that all the parents, grandparents got to meet her. Um, they all got to spend like a half hour with her before I even got in there. Um, but we didn't get to hold her. Yeah, I was mad about that. I was the last <laughs> one to meet my baby. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happened. Um, but yeah, she had to be put immediately on a medis- medication called prostaglandin. So it's um, an artificial part of like the hormone that keeps this little duct open when they're in utero. Um, she needed, she was duct dependent. She needed that duct to stay open be able to get oxygen to her heart so they had her hooked up to an id i mean she had an id within like two minutes of birth um but that was it she went down to the cardiac intensive care unit and was there for three days just on that id she was eating by mouth she we held her we gave her a bath we changed all of her diapers um and then that's when we started all of her like surgical procedures was at three days old that's incredible that she came out and was able to eat and yeah. Wow. 
She's a strong girl. <laughs> yeah, for sure. it was really special. Yeah. <laughs> when you finally were able to like have that moment and see her, is it what you expected it would be like, or was it different? Um, I had really, really braced myself for something really, really horrible. So I think I was completely overwhelmed in the moment of seeing her in the room because I actually, they had me on video going, is that our baby? Because I couldn't <laughs> believe that she was just sitting in there with everybody. Right. Um, but then, I mean, that she was born, like I said, at like one thirty in the morning and they let me go down into the CIC around nine thirty the next morning and like you know, eight hours later. And the nurse said to me, do you want to hold her? And I couldn't believe that they were just going to let me hold this baby that I was told I probably couldn't hold for months. And, you know, who, who knew what would happen? So I held her. Um, she was eating. She was eating by bottle and by breast. I mean, she was just she was like doing amazingly um and I just it, the emotions were all over the place I mean I had just had a baby but I was like crying I was overjoyed we were able to get almost it was she was born during flu restrictions so we were only allowed to have four people come to see her um but they were really good about knowing that she was going into this first surgery really risky so they actually let all six of her grandparents in because my parents are divorced and remarried. Um, they let all six in and they let both of her godparents, our local priest, and then also my one sister who's older, they let them all in to see her and hold her. So she got to be held by everybody before she had the surgery. Um, everybody got to meet her. We didn't have her baptized because I was at that point, I was like, no, she's going to, she's going to be okay. Um, we had her blessed though just you know I wanted her blessed but she um the priest came he blessed her but he did not baptize her I kept saying I want to do this in a church and I know we're going to be able to so um it was just it was a really emotional three days um her first procedure was just a calf lab but when it's a six pound baby a calf lab can be a crazy thing um they were actually taking her to calf lab to try to avoid her first open heart surgery they were going to try to um, insert a stent instead of doing what they want it to do. Uh, and we had such hope that we were going to be able to pass that for surgery. And the, the cast doctor came out and he just said, her duct that we need to stent is very, very curvy. And there's no way that I could safely get a stent in there. So then we moved, she had her first open heart surgery at six days old. So um, that for us was like a very, very scary experience. Just, she was so tiny. Um, but she did really well. She was in surgery for, I think, like 54 minutes. They did everything. I mean, she was put on bypass. Uh, they added, she was shunt dependent. So they put a shunt in her duct. And then um, she came out and we were down in the regular care unit out of intensive care two days later. So, I mean, that was insane. We did spend more time in the hospital. We weren't home very quickly after that. We had We worked on feeding challenges and weight challenges and oxygen challenges. But we weren't in intensive care. They felt stable, stable enough to move her into regular care where I could stay with her and I could participate in a lot more of her care than I could down in um, the ICU. Yeah. I was going to ask, how did, how did you feel like you were able to bond with her kind of through the, the beginning of the hospitalization and what, what specific things did you do? Um, they, CHOP is amazing because I've talked to so many families. Um, they're amazing about knowing this is your baby and that you want to do what you can. And they know when something's not safe for you to do and when something is. And 
even when she was in intensive care, they let me change her diapers. Um, they would let us feed her. And we, um, we couldn't sleep with her in intensive care, but me and my husband stayed down in the sleep rooms and one of us would go down every two to three hours and feed her. Um, so they were really good about that. Uh, they had great lactation consultants. So they had me in there with her. I mean, I think two or three days after surgery, they were trying to have her like put back on um, to breastfeeding. For her, it was too much work, which happens with a lot of cardiac kids. She just couldn't handle having to like work for food. So we, we bottle fed her, but I pumped and they were really good about, um, you know, making sure with me before they would use donor milk or formula, Hey, do you have milk that's down there with you? And I would bring it for her fresh every three hours. And, um, they would let us feed her. They would let us bathe her. They let me, um, put those in her hair and I would leave out blankets and they would redecorate her little pod every single day with her blankets. They made signs that said her name. Um, so they just made it feel more at home for us. They, they let us bring in her stuff. They even told me, um, they gave me a day's notice when she was going to be ready to get dressed so that I could bring clothes in for her. Cause I refused to bring clothes until I knew I could dress her. Um, so they gave me the heads up, you know, we're going to bring, we're going to let her get dressed tomorrow. Um, she can maintain her own body heat now. And, you know, putting that first outfit on her, I had them do it cause she still had a lot of IVs and lines hooked up, but, um, you know, they dressed her and they put her in my arms and it was just nice. And then we got transferred down to the CCU, um, really quickly, the cardiac care and down there, I mean, the nurses are there, especially with her being a newborn, you know, they're there, but they, they require the parent to do a lot more care because they want to make sure you can handle them at home. So they, they taught me, they gave us classes on how to listen to her heart because she had the normal heart rhythm. They gave me like a regular newborn class because I was a new mom. So like I learned how to do regular, like changing her diaper and doing her bath. But I also learned how to drop an NG tube because at the time she was um, partially NG fed. Um, so, but they made it like as normal. It didn't seem weird at all. And I guess part of it could be because we knew going in what we were getting, but like nothing about it seemed weird. Nothing seemed weird about, you know, them coming in to check her IVs. They were just all so like, Hey, is it okay if we come in right now? Um, they were really good if she was sleeping, they wouldn't bother her. They would come back. So they let us like fall into our own rhythm before we went home. And we did go home, um, three weeks after she was born. So we weren't even hospitalized that long. Um, they had told us to expect to be there for three to six months. So three weeks, I couldn't, we had nothing ready. I had to tell, when they told us we were getting discharged the next day, my husband had to like run home and set everything up because I was superstitious and wouldn't let him do anything. Um, but yeah, we took her home 20, I think it was 20 days after she was born. She was 20 days old. So that was our first experience. And um, we actually, I shouldn't lie. We took her home at 19 days and we got home and she <laughs> had blood in her stool and we went back and they just changed her diet and we went home the next day. Um, and then we stayed out of the hospital for about, I guess, eight weeks. We went back right when she was about 11 weeks old. Um, she had like drastically lowered pulse ox um, readings. Her oxygen was down into the, the 60s and she wouldn't eat. So we knew something was wrong. And that was like our first emergency admission into the hospital it was actually mother's day and um she needed to get stents but they did it the next morning monday morning she got stents and we were home tuesday um so again they were like so good with her care and in that time we had to learn how to give her um shots so we were giving her injections twice a day for blood thinners and even that like they somehow made me feel very normal that i was having to give my 
11 week old baby shots every day. That was, you know, when we realized how fragile she was in her stage, um, which is what they call the time in between the first surgeries. It's called inner stage. And you have like a whole team that follows you. You have to weigh her. We had to weigh her once a day. We had to check her oxygen twice a day. We had to do, um, write down every single thing that went in and out um, so that they could track her weight gain. Um, basically, it was all a, a big game of making sure she didn't go into massive heart failure in between the two surgeries. But I think that that was good for us because we did pick up on like the little minute things that were um, indicative of like really bad things to come because we had that experience with the pulp with the stents that wasn't horrible. But um, in August, she had a massive infection that we, they still don't know where it came from, but she basically went unresponsive in the middle of the night. And it just so, because we were on these strict rules, my husband had checked on her and he knew something was wrong. And we, we actually didn't even wait for an ambulance. We rushed her ourselves to the hospital. Um, she was code bleed at the door and completely, I mean, her oxygen was down into the forties and fifties. Her heart rate was in the high two hundreds. Um, she was basically going into complete um, cardiac. Like it, it was, it was horrendous. That was probably the worst moment that, that far in the journey for us. Um, and it was all caused just because she had an infection and, with her lack of spleen and the way her heart was, it was just too much for her. But even that, we spent 10 days inpatient with antibiotics, um, IV antibiotics, and then we went home. So it was just like another thing of her being, you know, showing us that she could handle all of this craziness. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's just such a roller coaster of emotions. It's like you get things handled and then something else happens and how terrifying. How, how do you handle the stress of, of all of this? Is it... I, I like what you said about like keeping with a strict routine because that's what you relied on and it's it showed up for you. It's made a difference, but what else has worked? I have made a lot of friends in the heart and heterotaxy community. Um, we, I've met other moms. I'm, I'm best friends with a mom that had her son nine days after Lucy was born. We went through a lot of the same appointments together and then our kids were in the hospital together um, and another mom who I met in patient there, um, and our old roommate there, it's just nice to have someone else who really understands because our families are great. Our families are super supportive. They will drive to or from that hospital seven times a day if we forget stuff, but just to have someone else who knows how hard it is, no matter how much you might look like you're smiling on the outside. Um, I think that those friendships and relationships that we've built have been like, probably the most important thing. I mean, the routine for us as parents, me and my husband has been most important. Um, just knowing her and how she is, I have fought with um, the ER, well, the ED at CHOP a couple of times because I knew something was wrong and they were looking at her and they were like, she seems fine for everything she has going on. And I said, this isn't my kid. I know that you see her diagnosis and you look at her and say she looks great but she always looks great and this is not this is not normal I fought with them tooth and nail for her second surgery her second open heart that something was wrong with her and nobody believed me and we went to the ED three times in a row um and finally my cardiologist her cardiologist who was away got all these emails you know these people keep coming to the emergency room you have to do something and she looked and she 
she looked at them and she, you know, the emails and she called Chop and said, you need to admit that. And she said, this mom is not like that. Something is wrong. They admitted us that afternoon. We went in, they did a cast the next morning and they said, we don't know how she's breathing. All of her blood flow to her lungs is basically cut off. Um, she needs to go to open heart surgery tomorrow. And I said, I knew something was wrong. <laughs> and I think just like having that odd stability at home of knowing I stayed home with her my husband would come home from work at five and he would kind of take over care so I could relax for a little bit and having all these other heart moms that I would talk to and say hey this is like a little red flag in my life what do you think of this really made me fight to know you know this is something that's wrong and just having a lot of support from all those other moms and our families and especially our cardiologist I I love this woman she probably thinks I'm like crazy because I really love her um but just having that type of support makes a huge difference because honestly, if nobody had listened to me and they kept turning me away, she probably would have died. And the only reason was because her cardiologist said, no, you need to listen to that mom. She knows something's wrong. Um, and that surgery was horrible. She had a horrible recovery from it. She went into total respiratory distress um, afterwards. She had to have a second surgery following it because she was, she was in really, really bad shape and, uh, she wasn't showing it at all on the outside. Like she was still playing. She wasn't eating. And that was the thing. My kid has always been an eater. They told us she would, and she's, she is tiny. She is tiny, but mighty. So people never believe me when I say she's an eater, but she eats all the time. And I kept saying, she's not eating. Something is wrong. Like she eats. Um, and so it's just, I think a lot of it's just building a community, like just knowing who your people are and who's going to support you makes such a huge difference in being able to get through this journey because I'm not good at self-care. <laughs> I'm really not good at it yet. I'll get there. Well, you haven't even had a moment, I feel like, to, to really dive in and find out what self-care is like. You've been kind of like this mama bear instincts, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, if you've listened to other episodes and I hear from mm -hmm. parents all the time, like you just have to trust your parent instinct because, yeah. and you have to shout until somebody listens. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the thing that I've learned from like a lot of these communities. And like you said, listening to other podcasts and hearing these other parents say like, sometimes you have to just keep like, until you're blue in the face, trying to tell somebody that something is wrong because you know. And um, I think that was the most important thing that her cardiologist and her surgeon told me right from the beginning is you're going to know her the best. So if you think something's wrong, like keep bugging us until somebody listens to you. And I did. <laughs> yes, exactly. And thank God you saved her life. Yeah. I, one day she'll thank me. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were some of the, and are some of the hardest parts about dealing with a child who has um, heterotaxy or these congenital heart issues? I think a lot, a lot of it is, massive amounts of stress like for me um and my husband just knowing you know that at any moment this little heart is working so hard that it could just give out or that something could go seriously wrong I mean we've lived basically under lock and key since November um because we've been so terrified of this cold and flu season so I think it makes it hard because you do get really disconnected from the outside world I think when I take her to doctor's appointments, she like stares at people because she forgets that there's people out in the world because we're so in our house and I'm completely insane about it. Even people who come to visit us, you know, shoes are off, hand sanitizer, cell phone in a bucket, put a face mask on. And if somebody has been sick in your household or around you at work, you can't see her for a week unless, you know, you know, you don't have symptoms too. Um, but I mean, it's just been, it's been my life of having to keep her alive. But I think 
for me right now, she's a baby. I mean, she just turned one on Saturday, but Yay, happy birthday. <laughs> yes. St. Patrick's day, um, which was, it was the greatest day of my life that she made it to one because that was a huge milestone. But, um, she doesn't realize right now that she's so different from everybody else. Like I think, you know, she's a baby. She has no idea. This has just been her life. And I think as she gets older, it's going to be a lot harder for me because right now, I mean, I know she's sick and all of our family does, but we can kind of pretend to her. She doesn't realize she thinks everybody goes to the doctors every, every week and everybody gets needles and IVs and things. And I think as she gets older, it's going to break my heart a little for her to realize that her cousins don't have to do this and her friends don't have to do this. And I think that's going to be a whole different set of challenges um, as she becomes more aware and that I'm already dreading because I see her now when we go into the doctors or into the hospital, she starts to tense up. So I know that she's starting to realize like, this is what this place is for. And then it's just going to make me even more heartbroken when she realizes that, you know, not everybody has to live this life, but so I'm cherishing, you know, probably the next couple of months before she starts to realize and can vocalize to me, you know, why. (laughs) Well, she's so lucky to have such an advocate for a mom for her and such a, such a good support because, um, I don't know if you got to listen to um, episode nine, Jamie, who had Tetralogy of Hello and her and her mom and just the difference that it made, like having someone in your corner and on your side that was going to be honest and supportive. And it was her life, but she had her mom by her side and it just made all the difference. Yeah, I, yeah, I hope that she, I hope that she feels that way. And I hope, um, you know, she would kind of realize that she had told her that we've done all of this just so that she can you know, have a life and be able to do all these things. And hopefully one day she can talk to people and tell them her story. Yes, absolutely. Um, Can you name any positive or unexpected or surprising moments that have happened kind of throughout? I'm sure all of them have been surprising (laughs) or unexpected, but any that you can name or want to share? I think that the most um, surprising thing to me about just all of this has been how much me and my husband, but also our whole family has really thrown ourselves into this world of congenital heart defects and um, really like, you know, educating people and causing awareness. Um, We've done like so many fundraisers. We just did a huge fundraiser at CHOP with them. Um, And I think this is a world that I never would have known about. So it's surprising to me how many other families um, there are that are affected by this. And I, I think that so many people don't realize I, I used to know kids were born with like holes in their hearts or like murmurs and things like that. But I never realized how severe some of these kids are. I mean, you know, kids who are single ventricle, tetralogy of low, trunk disc kids, all these kids who have these like really um, major heart defects that I had no idea existed. So I think for me, the most surprising part on that line has been meeting so many families I mean, I've met people who live four blocks away from me who said, oh, yeah, my kid has had three open heart surgeries um, on that end. But then also, I think the craziest thing for me was that when when she got diagnosed, I really thought that this was going to throw me into a complete place of like um, just I, I think kind of almost like an anger or a hate. And I don't I don't feel that way at all. Sometimes I feel sad because I feel sad for her that she doesn't get to live a quote-unquote normal life but then my husband reminds me that this is her normal and if anything I think that this whole journey has just made me 
feel such strength because she she just like amazes me every single day. Every thing that she does, I mean, they told me she would never eat by mouth, she would never crawl, she was never gonna walk. And she was walking when she was eleven months old I and mean, she runs around the house right now at one. Um she ate she ate chicken and corn and rice for dinner. She's like sitting there. She's like an independent little lady. She, she talks, um, you know, so far we haven't qualified for any early intervention services because they said, what are these people going to do at your house? Hang out with you. She doesn't need anything. Um, and I think that that to me has just been amazing. I see all these kids, babies, kids, teenagers, adults who live with these diseases and, they they're just amazing. I mean, no matter what, even if even if they maybe aren't hitting the milestones because they are having trouble, they are all the happiest people I've ever met. They're they're just so joyful and they're so kind and loving and it just makes me it just makes me really proud of the whole medically complex community because these parents are such warriors and these kids are such warriors and it's it's like an amazing thing to me. I belonged to a group at CHOP when I was pregnant called um mama care and um we would meet every week and it was seven moms and we were all delivering in the sdu and we all had kids with different problems like different health issues and um there was me and two other moms had heart children two of the moms had spina bifida children and um two of the moms had other issues one had a tumor and one had um, a bone disorder and um for for me i follow every single these single one of these kids stories still I still talk to the moms and it doesn't even matter that we're not necessarily the same type of health challenges just this like medical community um and the way that people support and uplift each other has just been I think that's been the most surprising thing to me people are so welcoming and loving from like all aspects of it what would you tell a parent who may be at that 20-week ultrasound that like you guys were at, what would you say to them? I think I always want to tell people that it's not the end of what you expected. It's just the beginning of a new journey. Because for me, when we got diagnosed, it felt very much like a death because other than the fact that we were given a very grim prognosis, it was, I mourned everything that she wouldn't get to do and that she wouldn't get to live normally and all this stuff. And I mean, I think that there's a chance that, you know, I, I don't know how long I'll still have with her, but I think that you just need to like readjust yourself. I found a poem that I put on our refrigerator, uh, Welcome to Holland, which I know a lot of our medical community, medically complex community follows that just kind of, you know, adjust your sales and go with what, your new normal is going to be because that new normal is amazing too. And it's just a different set of rules, but it's just what your life is going to be. And I just think that you could be really surprised by what a baby is going to teach you. You're amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you're making me cry. <laughs> I know. I'm like really trying not to cry. I'm like tearing uh, up and I'm like, I'm not going to cry. <laughs> I think it's allowed though. It's right. It's like, it's real. Oh, it's been a, it's been a long year. <laughs> uh, um, I would love to hear about like Lucy now. What is she like? What is she into? Tell us about her little personality. She is a fiery redhead through and through. Um, her hair is starting to go more strawberry blonde, but I call her my redhead anyway. Um, 
She is spunky. She loves to dance. She will dance to any music. I could put on salsa music, kiss, rap music, country music. The girl, her body starts moving the minute she hears the beat. Um, she runs from the front door. We live in a one-bedroom apartment, so we don't have a lot of room. But she runs from the front door to the very back of the hallway about 5,000 times a day. I don't know how she has the energy. She has half a heart. How is she doing this? Um, she runs around all day. She loves to, like, try new foods. And she just loves people. She, we took her to the mall last night to get ice cream after her shots, which was a big outing for us because we really haven't gone anywhere. And every person she passed, she would go, hi, hi, hi. That's her thing. She says hi to everybody. And if I, you know, if she knows a person, if it's her grandma, her aunt, her uncle, she'll bring them in for a big hug. She grabs you right by the face and pulls you in and puts her head on you and hugs you. Um, she's just so affectionate. She plays with her baby dolls. She rocks them. Um, she gives them her bottle, which is the cutest thing in the world. Um, but she's just, she's her own little person. She has such a little personality. Um, she watches The Price is Right every single morning. <laughs> um, she has since she was born. We They crack up us, at us at the hospital because we have every day at 11 a.m. Price is Right is on on the TV. And all the nurses know it. And they'll come in to see who won the showcase that day. Because it is her favorite. She will sit and watch that show from 11 to 12. But she will not watch one other thing on television. <laughs> I can put any children's show on. She might watch for like 20 seconds, but she does not care. Price is Right That's is her thing. <laughs> <laughs> she loves it. I I can almost guarantee that when she gets the chance to make a make a wish, we're going to see the prices right. But um she she's just so special. I mean, she was NG like tube fed for I think thirty six hours and then she was like, I don't want to do this. She has eaten by mouth the whole time. Um, even after surgeries. I mean, we never even had a drop a tube in between, you know, after surgery. The only time was when she went into respiratory failure. Um, we kept her intubated for five days in between the surgeries. That was the only time that she's ever been tube fed this whole experience. Um, she started crawling when she was six months old. She had that second surgery around that time as well. I think she was back to crawling about three weeks later, um, which after having an open heart surgery and a thoracotomy, I cannot believe that she even wanted to move at all. Um, but she was, she was rolling around like before we even went home from the hospital, she was rolling all around. Um, she started standing. She started walking. She t- it took her a really long time to start to sit up on her own, but she got there. Um, so I just feel like she's such a little fighter. She loves to play with the kids next door. She thinks she's she has total like chihuahua complex. Like she thinks she's a pit bull, but she's a chihuahua because she likes to try to like fight the big kids next door. Like she's is such a bully, and she's seventeen pounds at a year old. Like she's miniature. <laughs> So, but she, she thinks she's a big kid and she doesn't have time for us to tell her that she's not. <laughs> Could you describe what she's taught you through this experience? She has a smile on her face. Like anytime she could be getting an IV and she's mad when it's happening and she will definitely make it known and she will cry until she's blue, which doesn't take a lot for her. She's always tinged a little purple, but the minute after that IV is in and the IV person is done, she will smile at that IV person and be nice to them. And she, even when she was intubated for the five days, she, she would wake up every now and then and she was definitely in pain. She was not happy about being, she was on like paralytics and things. She would still look at you and she would just give you this little smile with her eyes. And I 
always hope that she keeps that and she doesn't become like bitter but it has taught me I thought this was going to make me so bitter and it has not at all like she is the happiest little thing she does not care she will like sing and kiss and give you hugs even if you just gave her an injection in her leg because she's just so happy that you're there to be with her and I think that that has taught me so much about how to just like look on the bright side because she doesn't see this all as bad she just sees it as her life and in that I've really looked at it I mean when I tell people about her story they they say to me I can't believe how how positive you are and I said I can't be negative because I've been living with a miracle for the last year. Like she, she's exceeded everything they ever told me she would. Um, she's just amazing. And I think I never thought like a baby, I always would hear people say that and I'd be like, Oh yeah. Okay. But she has taught me so much more about like people, humanity, and just like the strength that comes from within in the last year, because she just doesn't let anybody tell her she can't do it. And that's amazing to me. We can all learn from that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What resources would you recommend to a parent who's facing the same or similar challenges? I know CHOP had a lot of specific resources for you you guys, but um, was there anything else that you found either online or a book? And I love the poem, the Holland poem. I'll post that for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I, I love welcome to Holland. That was something that I found on my own. Um, and welcome to Holland has been I, I every time somebody joins a group that I'm part of and is newly diagnosed I private message it to them um but I think no matter what um where you are in the country or the world most of these um types of like you know each type of heart defect she has and each part of heterotaxy she has have like Facebook support groups Instagram um things that you can find so I think really for me seeking out support groups um especially for congenital heart defects, um, the Mend It Little Hearts, they're a national organization, but they have local chapters. So they like hooked me up with my local chapter, but there's chapters all over the country, which is nice because they can also match you with parents who have children with similar diagnosis so that you can kind of get more of like a trajectory of your actual experience. Um, But like finding those groups has been, I think, integral to me. Like we have a CHOP moms group that's all of us that talk and but I also belong to groups with thousands of parents who have hypoplastic left heart or um, TAPVR and things like that. So for me, I really think like whenever I put pictures of her on Instagram, I hashtag all of her different um, defects because I've had moms reach out to me through private messaging or through even right on that Instagram picture. And I said to me, hi, my baby was just born or I just got an ultrasound result. And they also have that HLHS, can you tell me more about your experience? So I think the online community is amazing because they are able, you're able to connect with someone who's on the other side of the world. One of the moms that I talk to very frequently is in South Africa. Um, So we would never have met each other if it wasn't for me hashtagging a picture and her private messaging me. We're Facebook friends now. We talk. Her son is very similar to Lucy, almost identical anatomy. Um, but South Africa handles surgeries really differently. So she's actually had Lucy's surgeon give her advice via email that she's been able to give to her surgeon in South Africa. So I think that the on, yeah, the online community and just being able to find people and just kind of seeking it out. I mean, when we got her first diagnosis, I knew nothing. I just typed hypoplastic left heart into a search bar on Google 
found organizations that were local, found Facebook groups that just kind of went with it. Um, and I think that the internet is like an amazing resource right now for parents because I, I always I always tell people like don't go on the Wikipedia page, don't read the bad stuff, find the other parents because yeah there are going to be parents that have had really bad experiences and I think you should know about that too. But then there's going to be people that have really positive experiences and you need to hear that as well. If you teared up during this episode, you are definitely not alone. Alex is more than willing to connect with other parents going through similar situations. So if you'd like to connect with her and follow along with Lucy and her journey, you can find her on Instagram and a Facebook page called Love for Lucy's Heart. I will link to both of these pages on the show notes page. I will also link to the poem Welcome to Holland that Alex mentioned during our conversation. Thank you so much, Alex, for being so open and so vulnerable with our listeners. Also, a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to the Child Life On Call podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Katie Taylor, a certified child life specialist, and I appreciate you taking your time to listen to the patient and parent-focused experiences that happen in the hospital and at home.